Church, it's so good to be with you today. And also, it was so good to worship with you all last week as we remembered and celebrated together the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. We had the privilege to witness um, 40 baptisms last week across six congregations, each of them declaring, yes, each of them declaring that Jesus is alive and our God is a God who saves. And so we were able to worship together along with Peter when he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Church, because of what Jesus has done, Peter tells us that he has secured for us, he has secured for you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept for you. It's kept for you, which is amazing news. But have you ever thought to yourself, especially during the hard and difficult seasons, yeah, but as wonderful as all of that is, what if I don't make it there? As wonderful as all that is, what if I don't make it there? What if the suffering in this world, what if the persecutions in this world, it gets so bad? What if the temptations to walk away from Jesus becomes too great and I just bail on him? Just walk away from Jesus. What if I betray him and deny him like Judas did? Have you ever had those thoughts? I know I have. Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So what good is the promise of future inheritance if I might just not make it there? What good is the resurrection of Jesus to me if I don't end up joining him in that resurrection? What can it avail us that our salvation is secured in a quiet harbor when we are driven to and fro amidst a thousand shipwrecks? And so Peter says in the next verse, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is saying, not only is there an inheritance being kept for us, but we are being kept for it. He tells us that we are by God's power being guarded through faith for that inheritance of eternal life with Jesus. What Peter is promising us is that no matter the suffering, no matter the temptations, and our falling into those sins that makes us grieve, that God's children will always make it. God's children will always endure. He's saying, church, you have a living hope, and that means you're gonna make it. You're gonna make it all the way to the end. Well, how do you know, Peter? Because you're being guarded. By God's power, he says. Church, do you know that? Did you know that this morning? That you are right now being guarded by God's power. God's power is guarding you. It's military language. It means shielded. It means kept under guard. God has put you under protective custody, as it were, to keep you safe until the end. It actually means that you are locked up in a garrison a garrison of his love. Not only are you safe from external danger, 
but you're safe from internal danger, which is what? The danger of our own hearts. The danger of our own hearts denying Jesus and trampling upon his grace and walking away. Christian, don't you know? Don't you know that if you could lose your salvation that you would? Don't you know this about your own heart? That if you could leave Jesus, that you would. But you're being guarded by God's power, it says. Kept safe in a garrison of his love. So if you're believing today, church, are you believing today? If right now as, you're sit, as you sit, you're thinking to yourself, I do believe today. I do trust him today. I do love him today and his word. You're being guarded. You're being guarded by God's power. That's not based upon your power. That's based upon his power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work within you to guard you through faith, it says. In other words, God's resurrection power is at work within you to keep you believing, to keep you trusting, to keep you loving Jesus and his word. It's a supernatural thing. And now I want you to hear today this. This is our transition back into the Gospel of Matthew, the book that we've been walking through. I want you to hear that God's power is at work to keep you and persevere you to the end, but not just through your faith, but through the faith of the people sitting next to you. God's power is at work to keep you, to guard you, not just through your faith, but through the faith of the brothers and sisters in Christ that you have in this church. When it comes to Christianity, when it comes to our salvation and persevering and enduring all the way to the end, what this is showing us is that it's a community project. We need each other. I need you to make it all the way to the end. You need me, you need each other to make it all the way to the end. If last week was about the extent to which Jesus has gone to save you, this week is about the extent to which the church must go to persevere you. If last week was all about everything that Jesus did to save you, this week is about everything that we have to do to endure one another, to persevere one another. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 today, verses 15 through 20, it says this, if your brother sins against you, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you, 
This text is about how to deal with sin within the body of Christ. And he gives us very detailed instructions on how to deal with it. Because sin is a big deal. Sin is what separated us from God to begin with. And listen, sin is what can separate us from persevering to the end. Sin separates. Sin cuts off us from God and us from each other. That's what sin does. Now, this doesn't mean that a Christian can lose their salvation if we sin. Otherwise, who can be saved, right? But it means that one of the genuine marks of a person who has truly been saved by Jesus is that we will never be able to continue to embrace and ongoingly love the very thing that caused the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus. Jesus took sin seriously and dealt with it in a serious way, remember? And so he wants us to deal with sin seriously and gives us a heaven-ordained process, as it were, to deal with sin within the body of Christ. Well, what is that process? Step one, look at verse 15 again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Jesus says, this is how you deal with sin. When your brother or sister in Christ sins against you, he says to go to him, go to her, and go to them alone, one-on-one, and tell them their fault. And if he listens to you, then he says, you have gained your brother. From the outset, here's the purpose and the whole detailed process. The purpose of the whole detailed process is this, to gain your brother to gain your sister, to restore the broken and separated relationship between them and us and between them and God. First, if your brother or sister sins against you, what you don't say is, well, that's on them, right? They're the one who sinned. I'm willing to talk. I'm even willing to forgive, but they need to come to me, right? That's not a heart that displays that you want to gain your brother or sister. Jesus saying, if you belong to me, if you're mine, this is how you deal with your brother or sister who has sinned against you. You go to them. That's what Matthew 18 is saying. The offended goes to the offender. But if you remember back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said the opposite. Matthew 5 verse 23 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. There, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In Matthew 5, Jesus said that if if you remember that your brother has something against you, so we're dealing with you having sinned against your brother, not your brother sinning against you. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said, you, the offender, go to the offended. So which is it? Do we need to go to them or they need to come to us? The answer, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. The point is that within this family called the church, if you're someone who has truly experienced the grace of the gospel, it's always your turn. That's what forgiven people do. That's what people who have experienced grace do. It's always your turn, whether you've sinned or whether you've been sinned against. In light of the gospel and what Jesus has done for you, he's saying you be the initiator. 
You be the pursuer. You be the one that says, I need to go. I need to go gain my brother. I need to go gain my sister. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for you. Jesus didn't wait for you to come to him. Right? Jesus didn't wait for you to go to him. He came to you. You see, Matthew 5 is about confession. If you sin against somebody, you go to them, confess your sins to them, ask them to forgive you and be reconciled. As James 5, 16 says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Every Christian, every Christian in the room, we all ought to have at minimum one or two believers of the same gender that you're open and vulnerable with. Brothers and sisters in Christ that you can confess your sins to, bring it into the light, and they pray for you and help you fight and stay faithful to God's word. Confessing our sins to one another, that's the normal and regular way of fighting sin and helping each other persevere within God's church. But what if they're not coming to you? What if confession is not happening? Do we just say, oh, well, that's their business? Do we just say, oh, well, who am I to judge? No, Jesus is giving us Matthew 18 in the case we're not obeying Matthew 5. Jesus is giving us Matthew 18 in the case that we're not obeying Matthew 5. Everything would be amazing and Sin would be properly dealt with in the church if we were all proactively confessing our sins to one another and seeking forgiveness and praying for one another, reconciling, forgiving, right? But in the case that we're not, Jesus is offering us more grace in Matthew 18, another safety net, as it were, within the church to keep us from having sin in our lives that we're harboring, that we're cherishing, that's, that's destroying us. He's saying, you may not be confessing and bringing your sins into the light, but I'm entrusting your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you bring it into the light. In other words, he's saying, I'm not leaving your perseverance, your enduring to the end, just up to you and your faithfulness, but also to the faithfulness of my church. I'm entrusting it also to the faithfulness of your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are our brother's keepers. So the first step in dealing with sin within the body of Christ is just to go. Go to your brother. Go to your sister. One-on-one. -on -one. Don't go talking about it with other people, saying, have you heard about so-and-so, right? That's just gossiping. Don't do the religious way of gossiping. Have you heard about so-and-so? We need to really be praying, right? Remember, the goal is to win your brother, to win your sister, and you'll never win your brother or sister by gossiping about them. Okay, so the first step is to go, but when do we go? When do you go? Do you go every time you're annoyed and angry about something someone did? No, remember, these are instructions on how to deal with sin within the church. Someone might have annoyed you, someone might have angered you, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they sinned against you, right? In fact, it might be because of your own sins that you're so annoyed and angry. So we go when there's a sin involved, okay? Then do we go every time someone sins against us? No, we don't. Well, why not? I thought we were supposed to take sin seriously. 
We don't because 1 Peter 4.8 famously tells us that love covers over a multitude of sins. And Proverbs 10.12 tells us that love, love covers all offenses. Well, what does that mean? It means that with love, we absorb the cost of their sin against us. You see, because forgiveness is never free, forgiveness always costs. If I go to your house and accidentally or purposely just break your TV, right? You can't just forgive me. A debt has been created and that debt needs to be made for it to be made right. You, can, you cannot forgive me and demand that I pay for your TV, right? Or you can forgive me and not demand payment from me. But in forgiving me, what are you doing? You're saying that you're going to absorb the cost of the TV that I broke. And isn't this what the cross is all about? This means that if you've come to experience Jesus forgiving you by absorbing the cost of your sins against him, then we need to be ready and lovingly willing to absorb the cost of other people's sins against us. An implication being that Christians shouldn't be walking around so sensitive all the time, always offended by this or that, always so ticked off by this person and that person, because we're saying, I'll absorb it. I'll absorb it. I'll gladly absorb it because that's what Jesus has done for me. Again, this is another normal and regular way that we deal with someone sinning against us. But what Matthew 18 is showing us is that there is a time. There is a time when we're called not just to absorb the cost of sin in love, but to confront the danger of sin in love. What Matthew 18 is showing us is that there is a time when we're called not just to absorb the cost of sin in love, but to confront the danger of sin in love. And so when do we do so? Galatians 6 gives us guidance. Galatians 6 verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. First, notice Paul says, if anyone is caught, if anyone is caught in any transgression, this means that the sin, it's gotten a hold of them. It's not a one-off sin, You've seen me commit, but it's a pattern. It's not that I lost my temper one time and yelled at you, but you see that I lose my temper regularly. I'm caught in the sin of anger. Do you see the difference? It's not just that I have the sin. It's that the sin has me. That's when I need a brother to confront me. And that's when you as my brother are called to confront me. So that's when, and this is the how. Paul says to do it with the spirit of gentleness. Gentleness, why? Because our greatest tendency when we're hurt, when we've been sinned against, right, is to either go into a silent, avoid the conflict, but you're dead to me mode, right? Or to go into a full-on vengeance is mine mode, right? But the focus and the purpose of you going to them is not to express and dump all your frustrations and bitterness against them. You're not supposed to be against them at all. You're supposed to be for them. You're trying to win your brother, remember? And nobody's ever been won. Nobody's ever been won by you beating them up in your bitterness and anger. The Bible tells us that it's the kindness of God. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So that's step one. 
And that's the heart of step one. Individually going to one another, confessing our sins to one another, praying for one another, reminding each other of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And so absorbing the cost of sins against one another. And so being healed of our sins and over and over and over again on a regular basis. But, but at times, but at times, even being willing to confront each other in love so that the brother or sister caught in sin might return and be restored. And I really wish we can say yes and amen right here and be done. But Jesus isn't done. Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. But if he does not listen, Jesus says. The bad news here is that sin can go so deep and it could de dig such deep roots in our hearts that we can reject even this kind of loving and gentle pursuit from a brother or sister. That's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus then doesn't immediately say, okay, if they don't listen to you, then kick them out of my church. They're cut off from my grace. He doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus says, if they don't listen to you, go bring one or two others with you who love them, who also wants to win them and try again. Why take one or two more? I think for one reason, it intensifies the pursuit. The two to three is supposed to multiply the care and the concern and the love. Or the two others may serve to say, actually, you're way overreacting. You're just really hurting and upset right now. Just by obeying the next step, you're having the humility to say, I can be completely wrong on this. And notice Jesus says to take one or two with you in order that, in order that, here's the purpose, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And so these one or two people, they're not there to say, yeah, I saw it too, and gang, it up, gang up on them, but to confirm the words that are going to be spoken in that meeting so that one biased, angry person doesn't come back and accuse someone unjustly and falsely. And so the two to three witnesses are just as much for the protection of the one being approached as well as for the one approaching. And if he refuses to listen to them, it says in verse 17, if they're unwilling to listen to you one-on-one -on -one, and if they're unwilling to listen to the three of you agreeing and seeing the same thing and lovingly and gently pointing out the dangerous sin in their life, if they reject that, then what? Is that the limit? Is that the line? Is that when we give up on them? No, Jesus says, you keep going after them. He says to go and tell the church. Intensify it further, he said. Intensify the love. Intensify the care. Intensify the pursuit. What Matthew 18 is reflecting in all these steps, right? It's not some cold clinical process of church discipline, but it's, a, it's reflecting a never-ending pursuit of Jesus for his people. 
Remember, remember, just before these verses in Matthew, what did Matthew just talk about? Remember? He talked about Jesus being the good shepherd that leaves the 99 to go after the one. Well, this is that in practice. This is a picture of Jesus going after the one that has wandered away. And the way that he does it, the way that Jesus goes after the one that has wandered away is that he does it through his people. He does it through us. We're never to tire of pursuing, forgiving, and reconciling with one another because we have a good shepherd named Jesus who never tires of pursuing, forgiving, and reconciling with us. But what if the person doesn't even listen to the church? Jesus says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? This means that when a person is hardened by sin at this level, right? At this point, they've rejected you coming to them one-on-one. -on -one. They've rejected you coming to them with a small group. They've rejected you coming to, coming to them with the whole church. When a person is hardened by sin at this level, then we as the church are called to no longer recognize that they are a brother or sister in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. As Christians, we're still called to love them, but no longer as a brother or sister, but to love them and serve them the way that you would an unbeliever. There's a difference, right? There's a difference to the extent to which you would love and serve your own family versus somebody else's family, right? But this is by far, this is by far the worst discipline the church is authorized to carry out. To declare someone, to declare someone to be outside of the body of Christ. Every time we've done it at this church, it's been the most painful, heartbreaking experience. But the good news is that many of them, many people, come back. God uses it to restore them. But what Jesus' words are showing here, as difficult as it is, is that at times it is the necessary thing to do. It's the necessary thing to do. And when we do so, we're not giving up on their salvation, but we do so in hope of their salvation, in hope that God would save them if they're truly an unbeliever, and in hopes that they would return and prove their salvation to be genuine. Now I know these are some hard things that Jesus is calling us to do. After all, who are we? Who are we to be doing these things? Who are we to be determining these things, even to the point of declaring somebody to be outside of the faith? But Jesus, knowing the daunting task before us, concludes by giving the church the authority, first the authority to do what he's calling us to do, and he gives us a promise also. He says, verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. First, he gives us the church the authority to bind and loose. Well, what does that mean? These are rabbinical terms that would have been very familiar to a Jewish audience. Binding refers to the idea of condemning. Loosing refers to the idea of acquitting. Jesus is giving his church the authority to bind, 
by discerning that a person is unrepentant and, is, and so is still bound to their sin, or to loose by discerning that a person is indeed repentant of their sin and is therefore loose from their sin. And the grammar in the Greek here is literally, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, or whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Well, this means that as we are being faithful in dealing with sin within the church, as Jesus has instructed us to in Matthew 18, that we are literally bringing about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. As we... As we obey this difficult process, we are literally bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And then Jesus gives us a promise. He says, where two or three agree about anything you ask, it will be done for you. And where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, that there he will be among us. Now this is a very, this is a verse that we're terribly guilty of misinterpreting, right? We use this text to say, that if just two or three of us would gather in any context and pray and agree about what we're asking, that God's going to give it to us, right? Have you seen that to be true? No. Why not? Is God lying? Is he unfaithful? Scripture is already rich with all sorts of prayer promises. We don't have to try to steal this one. We have to look at the context here. What Jesus is promising is the prayer of two or three when it comes to dealing with sin in the church. When it comes to praying for wisdom in how to pursue the brother or sister that's caught in sin. When it comes to praying and asking for discernment on when to declare someone as no longer part of the body of Christ. Jesus is promising that when you're praying for these things, my Father in heaven will do it. He's going to help you. And this is the beauty of the two to three in prayer. In the Old Testament, God required the witness of two to three to confirm the facts in a capital case. And, and then these two to three witnesses were to be the first ones to cast the stones to condemn the sinner. But in light of the gospel, the two to three witnesses are called forth not to be the first ones to cast stones in order to condemn, but the two to three witnesses are called forth to be the first ones to pray. First one's to pray and to restore. And then Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And this is where we ultimately find our comfort. Because what Jesus is calling us to do here is going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard. It's filled with pitfalls and dangers. We've not always perfectly done this at our church. But he's saying this. He's going to be there with us in it. He's going to help us make the right decision. And he's going to help us have the right heart attitude. And he's going to keep us focused on the true goal, which is to win our brother, which is to win our sister. Now in conclusion, maybe all of this has been disheartening for you, right? Maybe you're thinking, man, if Jesus is real, if the gospel is true, why do we even have to talk about this, right? You may be thinking, if the cross is so wonderful, and if Jesus is so wonderful, why can't the church just be wonderful, right? Why all this sinning against each other? But church, don't you see, 
that unreconciled relationships and Christians hurting one another and sinning against one another is inevitable. It's inevitable precisely because the church is such a wonderful, supernaturally created community. The reason why the Bible has to tell us over and over again so many times to forgive one another, to reconcile with one another, is because the people that Jesus has called to himself to make up this church are not people who would naturally be friends, but who would naturally be enemies. What binds the body of Christ together is not our common education or income levels. What binds us together is not our common politics or our common nationality. What binds us together, we've not come together because we all naturally look alike, talk alike, dress alike, right? These are the needed ingredients to make up a worldly community. But the Christian community, the reason why we've come together, the reason why we're committing to each other and saying, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, I will help you endure all the way to the end. Whatever it takes, will you help me to fight and be faithful and make it all the way to the end? What binds us together is one person, one reason only, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. The reason why we need to do this together is because fighting sin is hard. The reason why we need each other is because fighting against sin is that hard. But the reason why we would want to do this together is because Jesus has made us into a family. He's made us into a family, a family that he's thought up, a people who would have otherwise wanted nothing to do with one another. But because of the way that we've been loved by Jesus and because of the way that we love Jesus, we're a people, we're a family, who's committed to love one another, to pursue one another, to forgive one another, to never give up on each other, until that day, until that day when we see our Jesus face to face and we realize that through it all, through all the trials, through all the tears, that we've been kept, that we've been kept that we made it to receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Let's pray together. Church, very action-oriented this morning. Will you pray and will you ask God, is there someone you've sinned against? We ask him to bring that person to mind? Or is there a person that sinned against you? And that's created a divide between you. Will you pray and ask God that he would give you the strength, the courage, and the love to be the one that goes? That you be the one that goes. And church, if this is a kind of community that you don't have, maybe, if, maybe even if you've been coming to this church for years, but you're unable to say, these brothers, these sisters, 
One, two, three, four, five of them. They're the ones. They're the ones that I want to help me persevere. They're the ones that I want to serve in persevering. If you don't have that, will you ask him to reveal some of those people to you that you can go? Perhaps you need to just go join an MC. Will you ask God that he would bring some people to mind where you could pull aside this week and ask, will you help me? Will you help me and can I help you? Can we do this together? Can we help each other persevere, endure all the way to the end? And lastly, if you do have these brothers, these sisters, will you thank God for them? And will you find the time sometime this week to communicate afresh? I want you to know that I'm committed to you at this level. I'm all in. Whatever it takes, I want to help you endure all the way to the end. Will you help me? Father, we thank you for our wonderful cross. We thank you for our wonderful gospel. We thank you for our wonderful Jesus who has created for himself our wonderful church. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves to make it, to endure through the storming, raging sea of life but you have provided for us a safe harbor within this church. We thank you for it. We ask that you would make us faithful, faithful not only to you, but to one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.